end of the first day. It's no small feat, really. Uh, how many people felt sleepy today? Raise your hand. How many people felt restless? How many people felt both? <laughs> um, how many people experienced physical pain today? How many people had some version of the thought, uh-oh, <laughs> what have I got myself into? <laughs> Another week of this, yeah. How many people felt grateful at some point for some aspect of the support here that Spirit Rock offers? Awesome, great. So, you know, as some of us were talking about in the small groups, often these first um, days of retreat are really kind of like a detox. You know, there's so much stimulation for most of us in our day-to-day life. We're so busy. We're moving at such a quick pace, mentally, physically, uh, that there's kind of this backlog often of tension and stress and sleep deprivation and distraction. And So we get here and there's often this kind of like withdrawal from all of the stimulation and the busyness. And sometimes it can feel like the mind is just going nuts inside. Like going over the same list a million times, it's like, yeah, I know, I thought about that like a hundred times in the last hour, give me a break. So all of this is completely par for the course. You know, it's just just a transition, right? From a very uh, different frequency and pace of life to something that's a little more sane. in many ways, right? Like getting up in the dawn, moving at a more natural pace, doing one thing at a time, simplifying. Uh, but in that transition, we, we kind of have to go through this, this space um, of allowing some of the accumulated tension to burn off. So that's a lot of what's happening in these first, first few days, which is why I say, you did it, great right? The first day. Uh, so that roller coaster may continue for another day or so. It, it really depends on each of us. Um, but you'll find your sea legs continue to, to give it space and be gentle. and It, it sorts itself out, really. I, uh, I mentioned last night when we did our introductions um, that my father moved to this country Um, from the Middle East. So he was born uh, in what was then British Palestine uh, and grew up in a one-room shack with his parents and two brothers. Um, His mom raised chickens and goats and rabbits to help feed the family. And uh, I've heard different versions of this story from my mom and my dad, who are at this point no longer together. But uh, the way my dad tells it... um, you know, they, they were very poor growing up, but the way he tells the story, um, when he was about 14, his parents sent him off to a kibbutz, a kind of intentional community uh, living situation in, uh, in Israel because they couldn't afford to continue feeding an extra mouth. Um, the way my mom tells the story, he was getting into a lot of trouble 
as a kid, uh, ended up spending a night in jail, and his parents were worried about him, so they sent him to a kibbutz. So one, one way or another, he ends up on a kibbutz at age 14, driving tractors, agriculture. And um, so I was visiting him a couple of years ago. He lives in Jersey. He's in his late 70s now. And um, there's a view of New York City near his house from, from New Jersey. You can see the whole skyline. And uh, it's quite beautiful, particularly at night if it's clear. You know, you can see all the lights and kind of the outline of the, the city skyline. And uh, so we're driving home and we, we, we stop at this one particular place where you can see a nice, nice view. And um, I can't remember if it was there in the car later when we got home, but, but uh, something about the view stimulated this memory. And he, uh, so he shared with me the first few months of being there at the kibbutz as a teenager. The, the room that he was in was up on this hill. And every evening he would, he would watch the sunset. And he remembers like it was so beautiful. He would just stand in the room and just watch the sunset. And then after a few months, you know, things got busy. He got accustomed to the life and the routine. And he said he remembers one day walking back into his room. It happened to be right at the hour that the sun was setting. And then he noticed it again. And he was so startled that he had forgotten to notice the sunset. He'd gotten so accustomed to the routine, he stopped noticing it. I think we all have moments like this in our life, right, where we wake up to something meaningful or beautiful, whether it's a beautiful scene in nature, our child, our partner, our own health. And we realize how we've been taking something so precious for granted. But the question is, what do we do about it? Right? How do we respond? How do we take that information and use it so that we don't fall back asleep? very famous line from one of the early Buddhist texts about two and a half millennia ago, where the Buddha said, those who are heedless live as if already dead. Right? When we lose that quality of wakeful awareness, we're sleepwalking through our lives. In the same text, the Buddha also says, Better than a hundred years lived without awareness is one day spent seeing clearly. So this is what we're doing. We're learning how to live. We're learning how to live with awareness, to not take things for granted, to actually be here for our life. Because it don't last very long. And a decade's gone, right? So what are we doing? How are we living? This is what we're studying. 
So I want to talk tonight about some of the core factors and qualities that really drive this practice. There are essentially two parts to this path. The first part, uh, which is referred to in the Buddhist language uh, as of Pali, the language the Buddhist texts were recorded in, the first part is called samatha practice. And this is about steadying the mind, calming, collecting, and gathering our attention. The second part of the path, the second part of the practice, is about looking deeply, seeing clearly. So we calm and we steady the mind in order to be able to study experience and understand it. So in this path, the purpose of concentration, calm, is always in the service of clear seeing. It's to understand things more clearly because when we understand, we change how we're living. We don't struggle and suffer unnecessarily as much and we're more available to others and to the world to respond to the need that's there. And these these two sides really support each other and grow together. So this first part of shamatha or samatha practice, often translated as concentration, the word literally means something like calm abiding. So that sense of resting. And this is a really nice, nice way of talking about it. It's a quality of restfulness. And this is what we've really been encouraging today, is just that simplicity of coming back to the anchor again and again and again. Whatever it is, a thought, a sound, a memory, an emotion, as much as possible, we've been encouraged you, just put it aside and come back. Keep coming back. And the effect of that over time is this gathering, this kind of collecting of our attention from our habit of being so scattered and from the effects of our society and our technology, which tends to fragment our attention always tracking different things, always rushing and jumping from one thing to the next. So much so that that pattern of jumping ahead becomes the uh, kind of the default of the mind, right? And before we've even finished one thing, the mind is already on to the next and we end up living our life sort of in fast forward, always waiting to or trying to get to the next thing and missing what's right here in front of us. So this calming aspect of the meditation is about gathering, collecting, steadying our attention, allowing all of our energies and resources, our heart, our body, our mind to come together, to be in the same place at the same time, just doing one thing, whether it's sitting, walking, washing our hands, drinking a cup of tea, brushing your teeth. This is very, this very simple kind of attention. And this creates a steady foundation for the insight practice, for being able to see clearly the nature of our experience. One of the analogies the Buddha used for this process is it's like a, like a pond of water. So when we're caught up in all kinds of craving and desire, it's like the water is filled with beautiful dyes and we can't see into it. 
And when we're caught in some kind of irritation or annoyance or hatred or resistance, it's like the water is bubbling and roiling and boiling. We also can't see into it. Or if we get really sleepy and heavy and apathetic, it's like the water is filled with algae and muck. Or if we're restless, all stirred up, it's like wind on the surface, it's all disturbed. Or if we're caught in doubt, uncertain, flipping back and forth, that's like the mud in the water. But when the surface of the water is still, the water's calm and steady, and we can see clearly all the way to the bottom. Have you ever been by a body of water, maybe like a lake? pond, or even sometimes by the shore, and it's just really still. The surface is like glass. It almost kind of stills something inside. You you almost kind of feel it. Wow, it's really still. It's that quality of stillness, and then the mind is clear, and it just reflects whatever's happening. That's its nature, to know what's happening without distorting it. The uh, Vietnamese uh, Zen master and poet and teacher Thich Nhat Hanh has a beautiful analogy for this process of calming, settling. He says it's like having a glass of apple juice filled with pulp. Right? So if I had a glass of apple juice here, if this were apple juice, and I, I put it down here, and I took a spoon and I stirred it and I tried to push all the pulp down to the bottom, what's going to happen? It's just going to get stirred up, right? But if we just left it there for like an hour or two, what happens? Right, Jude's going like this. It just settles. Right? All, that, all that junk and pulp and the floating particulates in the apple juice settle to the bottom and you're left with this clear, pure juice. So that's what this calming practice is like. We don't, we don't mess around with things too much. You don't have to make anything go away. You don't have to control it. You just hold the space. Just keep coming back, being steady in whatever way you can, and things settle on their own, just like the pulp in that juice. The other core aspect of the practice is this vipassana, which literally means... um, to see clearly, to see into insight. One of the core driving qualities of insight meditation is mindfulness. Well, mindfulness gets a lot of press, right? It's the one that's out front. <laughs> it's the one that we hear the most about. And for good reason. It's one of the most central factors on the path. Sometimes mindfulness is talked about as the leader, right? Like you ever watch uh, geese flying, right? They fly in formation. There's always one in front, kind of breaking the wind. And then they, they take turns, they rotate. So mindfulness is that leader. It's the one out front. But it's not alone. It's always supported by other qualities and factors that come along with it. So mindfulness has this very unique property 
when we're mindful, when we're present in this kind of clear and balanced way, mindfulness has the property of strengthening all of the healthy qualities in our heart and our mind and withering the unhealthy ones just with the power of its clarity. It's said to be a doorway to all of the wholesome qualities of our minds. So I want to talk a little bit more about what mindfulness is. For some of you, this will be review. And also some of the nuances of the other qualities that support it in the practice. So mindfulness means knowing what's happening, right? rather than being lost. This is the most fundamental aspect. It's knowing what's happening in a particular way. So it's knowing with a certain quality of clarity and balance. So we're not getting caught up in what's happening. Because you can be aware that you're anxious and get yourself worked up into a panic attack. That's not mindfulness. (laughs) It's not just being aware. It's being aware and not getting lost. Staying balanced and clear. Sometimes we say that mindfulness is an awareness that's not distorted by our biases, by our preferences, by the filters that we carry from the past. And if you've ever done any work on this in your life in various ways, you know that's not easy. It's not easy to see clearly without the history that we each carry. This is what we're practicing. So mindfulness, is a, it's an innate quality. It's completely natural. We all have mindfulness. It's what helps you remember where your room is or where you put your keys at home, right? And when we lose mindfulness in our, in our day-to-day life, it's very obvious and can be a little bit frustrating, right? Like you walk into one room and you're like, wait, why did I come in here, <laughs> right? We lost mindfulness. We lost that continuity of awareness of what's happening. Right? Or for those of you who commute, you've probably had the experience of getting home at the end of the day and going, oh my gosh, I have no memory of driving here. <laughs> you were on automatic. Right? That, that mindfulness, that quality of present time awareness was absent. The mind was somewhere else while the body was doing another thing. So the word in Pali for mindfulness is sati, which literally means to remember. So we're remembering to be here. We can be mindful of anything. So mindfulness just means this, in part, this quality of bearing something in mind, kind of staying with it, whatever it is that's happening. So staying with your anchor, whether it's the breath, hearing, walking, Right? If you're drinking a cup of tea and meditating, that the tea becomes the anchor, the whole experience of the sensations, the smell, the taste, the heat. So you keep coming back to that anchor again and again, spending as much time as possible with it, really getting intimate with it, studying it, learning from it as much as possible. So we start by being mindful of these very simple, basic accessible experiences like breathing, like feeling the hands or the body, noticing sounds. And then from there, the training 
progresses by expanding to include more and more and more of our experience. So we include our thinking, other body sensations, emotions, the very kind of flavor or tone of our experience as being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. We can even include the intentions behind our actions, the impulses, what's driving us to act. So there's nothing that's left out eventually in the practice. Everything that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel, think, all of that we can be clearly aware of in a balanced way. So this steadiness, this kind of collected stability of mind and this clear non-reactive awareness, these work together moment by moment and they, they support each other. The more things stabilize, the clearer we see. The more we see clearly, that stability deepens one moment to the next. The process of practice, the process of kind of engaging these factors of stabilizing, bearing something in mind, is one of connecting with whatever you're paying attention to. So you notice it, there's that initial connection, and then sustaining your attention. So with the breath, for example, become aware of an in-breath. So that first moment that you notice the in-breath, there's that connection. You kind of aim the mind towards the breath, or sometimes it feels more like you're, you're just receiving it. There's kind of this awareness that's here, that breath arises, there's that initial moment of, okay, an in-breath. And then we see if we can sustain the attention through the entire in-breath from the beginning, to the middle, all the way to the end, just one in-breath. And then the same with an out-breath. Turns into an out-breath, there's that connection at the beginning, and then we commit to staying with it all the way through to the end. Same thing with the walking. So you take one step, there's that initial connection, taking a step, and then you try to sustain the awareness through the middle, all the way to the end of the step. And bit by bit it grows. When we can do this, we start to get our life back. We start to actually be here, to be present for the real stuff of life. Share a short poem with you by Mary Oliver. Some of you may be familiar with this poem. She passed away this this year. This is called When Death Comes. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn. When death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut. When death comes like the measle pox. When death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades. I want to step through the door full of curiosity 
wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence. Each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life, I was a bride, married to amazement. I was the bridegroom, taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. This quality of mindfulness that we're cultivating opens that possibility of not just being a visitor here, of really living deeply. So mindfulness is more than a surface level of awareness. What this, this, these qualities of aiming and then sustaining our attention do is it brings us into a more intimate relationship with life in a direct way. So mindfulness has a quality of intimacy to it. It's a non-conceptual awareness. We're dropping below the world of thoughts and concepts and ideas to really taste what it is to be alive each moment. Do a little experiment together. So I'm going to ring the bell. I want you to explore two things. First, explore these two aspects that I've pointed to of connecting your attention, so just receiving the sounds, noticing it, and then sustaining it, okay? I also want you to notice the difference between the world of thought, the conceptual knowing that says, oh yeah, that's the bell, which is dead. Concepts don't change, life does. Notice the difference between the thought, that's the bell, and the actual experience. The non-conceptual awareness of the sound, of the hearing, how it changes. Okay.
So the thought might still be there. You don't have to make it go away. It might come in and out. That's fine. It's just a function of our mind to label things, recognize them, know what they are. It's not a problem. But that's only one level of reality. Some people spend their whole lives there. Never waking up from that dream of thinking. We're remembering how to reconnect with the actual experience of being here in this body. So do it again and see if you can notice that difference between the thought, the concept, as it comes in and out, recognizing the sound, and the non-conceptual awareness, that felt direct experience of the hearing. Sustaining your attention, then it, then it drifts, then bring it back, sustain it. So this is what we're practicing. We're learning to do this with everything. Be available. So this intimacy of mindfulness, another way it's talked about sometimes, particularly in the Zen tradition, is is having a beginner's mind. Each breath, each step, each moment is something new. We don't really know what's going to happen. Life is this constant flow of changing experience. And it's just the filter of our thinking from the past that makes it seem like it's the same. Suzuki Roshi called it a soft readiness. About mindfulness as a soft readiness that we don't know what's going to happen. And we're ready for anything. It's soft. It's not rigid. It's not fixed by ideas of the past or what should be is flexible. And there's not that sense of expectation of I should be this way or the practice should be this way. So mindfulness is about connecting with experience very deeply on its own terms. As soon as we have an expectation about how things should be, we shut down the possibility of true connection. to understand something, to really experience it directly, to see it in a new light, we need to let go of what we think, of how we think things should be, even of what we think we know. As soon as you think you know what's happening, you're no longer in the moment. No longer meeting life fresh. We're applying some filter from the past. And of course, there are times where that's helpful. It's not that we stop doing that. But is that what's dominating and forming our experience? Or are we able to put that down and just be here? And it takes a certain kind of humility to do this, to be willing to not know. But this is where true learning starts. 
I had a, a science teacher in seventh grade in middle school. Her name was Mrs. Cecilia. And she gave us all a science project that, looking back, was brilliant. So it was the end of winter, a few months hence, on the East Coast. And uh, the assignment was to observe and draw uh, one branch of a tree in the transition from winter to spring. And to like watch the tree every day and draw it. So seventh grade, I must have been, I don't know, 12 years old or something, right? I've been around long enough to know what spring is. Yeah, the leaves come out on the trees. But I never really looked. My experience of spring was limited by my idea of what spring is. And that I know what spring is because I've seen it before. So I picked this one particular sapling right near our house. It was a maple tree, fairly young, so it was small. I could see the branch and observe it. And for a couple of weeks, every day, I went out to this one particular branch and looked at it and really looked. Because the assignment was to draw it. right? And to draw something, you actually have to observe it. You have to look closely at it. And I was amazed. How from this little dead twig, or what seemed dead, all of a sudden, this little thing starts pushing out. This very small, pale green, tight, closed. Then it gets bigger and bigger. And it starts to open. And this leaf starts to unfurl. It's like iridescent. So delicate. And then it opens. And then there are two. This is mindfulness being right there for the experience and looking, seeing it as it actually is rather than through the filter of our ideas. We're learning to see in this way and we're also learning to live in this way. This is from um, the philosopher and teacher Krishnamurti from one of his journals. One of his musings, his definition of meditation, he said, just to be sensitive, just to be vulnerable, like that new leaf which was born a few days ago to face storms, rain, darkness, and light. Can we allow ourselves to be as open as sensitive as that new leaf, to actually begin to experience the whole range of what it is to be alive, not just the things we like, not just the things we prefer. So this is another aspect of mindfulness, is this aspect of balance. So mindfulness means connecting without controlling. This is the way Michelle McDonald, one of the ways she talks about mindfulness. It's connection without control. We start to see the way our mind's habit is to always try to manipulate experience to get as much pleasure as possible and to wriggle away 
from that which is unpleasant. This is the disease of the mind. It exhausts us. And the more entrenched it becomes, the narrower our life becomes. We become more and more attached to having things our way and less and less able to actually be with the truth of life, which is unpredictable, out of our control, and a mixed bag, right? It's all of it. So mindfulness practice, it's this intimacy with experience. And as we become intimate with experience, we touch all of it, not just the pretty parts. What allows us to do that? It's not easy, it takes courage. Some of what allows us to do that is this quality of balance. We start to see the way the mind reacts, the way it trembles, withdraws, the heart pulls away from things that are unpleasant and resists it, or it tries to push against it, or the things that are pleasant, how we want to engulf them. Ah, I like that, give me more. more. I want more, more for me, for me, I want more. We start to notice those tendencies and just by observing them, by being present to them, we discover something else, something deeper, something wider, something more stable, that we don't need to rely on those ingrained habits of latching on to the pleasant ones and pushing away the unpleasant ones to get through life, that we actually have the capacity to be present in the face of these changing conditions that aren't in our control without being crushed by them. So this takes patience, it takes balance, and it takes a lot of kindness, right? It's not easy to show up again and again. It's not easy to sit with boredom and back pain and restlessness and sleepiness and doubt. So the mindfulness isn't enough. We need these other qualities. We need courage, patience, kindness, balance. One of, um, one of the teachers Heather and I practice with sometimes, Ajahn Suchito, monastic from the Thai forest tradition, British monk. He says, goodwill is the whole atmosphere of our practice. It's what you sit in. What else are you going to sit in? Ill will? <laughs> right, so that sense of creating a space for our own heart and mind and the practice of warmth, of kindness. Because number one, we're not in control. And number two, there's a lot of things that are unpleasant inside and out that we come into contact with. So we need that kindness to protect the heart, to soften. We have this mistaken belief that we can control what's happening. Right? Every time you judge yourself for getting lost in thought, that's based on a wrong idea. It's based on the assumption that you're in charge, right? If you were in control, things would be a lot different, probably, inside and out, right? If any of us were in control. 
But that's what we see again and again. We come to the cushion and it's like, okay, I'm going to be present. Two seconds later, we're gone. It's not up to us. So the point isn't what happens. It's how we relate. That's what we're learning here. And we, we see over and over and over again how the mind wants to control experience and how tied up in knots we get when we can't until that pattern burns itself out and we realize how much more peaceful it is to just be present, to not try to control what's happening inside. So I want to share with you one of the... Um, one of the secrets of this practice, two of the secrets of this practice. So number one, when your mind wanders, when you lose mindfulness and then it comes back, you ready? That's a good thing. (laughs) It means the practice is working, right? You see that? Every time mindfulness returns, that's a win. Don't beat yourself up. Something really good just happened. (laughs) You just remember to be mindful. It's great. It's really good news. Celebrate it. Feel some joy and appreciation. Great. We're back. All right. Let's do this. Awareness has returned. We got a cat this year. I love this cat. She's so cute. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll see pictures of her. Her name's Lexi. She is such a love bug. She just wants to cuddle. She's so great. Um, If every time Lexi came, I like sprayed her with the water bottle and got angry at her, you think she would keep coming coming back? No, she learned pretty quickly. Stay away from that guy. He's going to beat you up, right? Well, what do we do to ourselves? How many times did you beat yourself up today for coming back, for being present, right? So the more you can celebrate and welcome the return of awareness, the more the practice will start to go on its own because it just develops a positive feedback loop. It's like, great, we like to be here. The other secret of this practice is that it's not about what's happening. We can have so many thoughts and judgments about our practice. I'm not doing it right. Look how peaceful everyone else is. I'm the only miserable slob struggling with sleepiness and back pain, feeling like a failure. You know, it'll be this way for the rest of the retreat comparing to others, assessing our performance, evaluating. None of that really helps. We have this idea that if we're doing it right, we should be having this one kind of particular experience, whatever that is that we've made up in our mind. So the secret of this practice is it's not about what happens. It's not about getting something or having something, some kind of special experience. It's about how we're relating to what's happening. And from the development of awareness and insight, everything is equally important. Everything is equally capable of being the catalyst for deep insight and transformation, brushing your teeth, going to the bathroom, feeling lonely, all of it 
So each moment, our practice is just about showing up when we can and bringing kindness when we can't. Because we can't show up all the time, and that's fine. That's just part of the process. Don't fight that. Let it be. When the conditions are right and your heart's ready, it'll come back. The more you can trust that awareness will return on its own, the deeper the practice will go. Keep showing up, connecting, sustaining your attention, being with that felt experience below the ideas. What's actually happening? And then how are you relating? Can you bring some kindness, some patience, some measure of balance to it? I'll end with a short quote from uh, the poet Patrick Overton. I can find it. When you walk to the edge of all the light you have and take that first step into the darkness of the unknown, you must believe that one of two things will happen. Either there will be something solid for you to stand upon or you'll be taught to fly. So let's just sit quietly for a moment together. Thank you so much for your listening, your attention. We uh, we we say in this uh, in this tradition in this teaching, take what's useful, and leave the rest aside. So we have some time for walking practice, and then um, at nine at nine o'clock, I want to encourage you to come back for the last sit. It'll be a shorter sit. We know some of you are still adjusting to the time zone, recovering from travel. It'll be a short sit, and we're going to do some beautiful chanting. Okay, so enjoy your walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.